The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Hi, everybody. <laughs> it's always nice to see that social connection energy sort of bloom. Actually, you guys were quite subdued tonight. You should have heard the Sunday morning group. <laughs> it gets like really big. And then it's so interesting, then it all just settles back down. It's really nice to watch that, just not here at the center, but just through your life. You know, it's like every time you enter some situation, it's like a rebirth, you know, and you're becoming the person who's home now. And you're, you know, and then that ends when you go to work tomorrow morning and you're kind of born into the person getting into your car. And then you're, you know, you're that person who's driving to work. And then that ends, that dies. And you're the person being born into, you know, being at your workspace. And then eventually, it may seem like forever, but that dies too, you know. And then you're the person that's wandering around looking for lunch or whatever it is next for you. And even within that, each of those periods are little birth and deaths. And it really changes how we look at life when we see, you know, they're just these little... Instead of like even today when we look back over the last whatever it's been for us, 12 hours or so. You know, how many Marks have there been or how many Lewises have there been or Mustafas have there been or Kathys have there been today? These little bubbles that, you know, we had a particular personality manifesting in that little bubble and we were like that. The world seemed like this, lasted for a while and then it passed away. And then another and then another. You know, had a little argument with one of your kids or you had a little beautiful moment with a partner or you had a special moment out under a tree or, you know, frustration with your electronic device. or And there are these like little sort of birth and deaths. That's who I was. That's what was true then for that period of time. It arose. It had some integrity, you know, some cohesion for a while, that reality, that mood that sort of those qualities of mine. But it never lasts forever. Even the darkest, most difficult moments of our lives, it's really useful to kind of remember how difficult life has been. I mean, maybe this is one of those moments for some of you, but hopefully not too many of us. But we've all had some difficult moments and they bloomed and it was like monstrous for a while, terrible, heavy, difficult. Maybe it even lasted, not continuously, but mostly for even days at a time, months. But eventually, it ends. And it's interesting then, it's like, oh, I'm not that depressed person anymore. I'm not that suffering human being anymore. I'm actually happy. You know, we have to like really be willing to let that old life die because it's not true anymore. Now we're a different being. We even see this with mindfulness of breathing. Like to do this first, the the first two instructions where we're noticing the long and short breath. Nick, would you turn the volume down a little bit? It seems a little bit high tonight. You know how to do that? Yeah, that would be good. Um, With each breath, because the first two instructions are just learning to track the breath. 
And remember, it's not that the breath itself is mystical or special, but what's special in the, in the sense of transforming for the mind, for the heart, is to put down the mental proliferation, the almost constant thinking, worrying, planning, judging, comparing mind, fantasizing mind. And to put that down, one very useful technique is to give the attention to something non-conceptual. Breathing in is non-conceptual. Now, we can think about breathing in, but the actual physical experience of feeling the touching at the nostrils as the breath comes in and feeling the touching as it goes out, there's nothing, we don't need words for that, we don't need a mental image for that. It can just be that touching, maybe a little of the coolness as the air comes in, then a little warmth as the air goes out, or maybe some of you prefer to feel the breath down here as the rising and falling of the abdominal wall. But when we train the mind, when we encourage the mind to just track that, to know the breathing in physically, to know the physicality of breathing out, then we just have to put down everything else. We can't be planning our future, thinking about the past, wondering if somebody still loves us, if we're fully, wholly present with the in-breath. And so the Buddha devised a very simple technique. He says, like, if you can track the in-breath well enough to know whether it's relatively long or short, then you've had to put down everything else. Because you'll see, like, you might guess, you might be able to guess, oh yeah, that was a short breath. But to really know with certainty, no, that was more of a short breath or more of an erratic breath or more of a smooth breath to really know the breath as an entity in itself, like as something that had a birth and then ended, to really be there for that in order to know it, you've got to put everything else down. Because the mind can't know two things at the same time. No, it can go back and forth, but then you may not really know what kind of breath it was if in the middle you got distracted and started thinking about Monday. So if you're really there from the beginning to the end, then you know, yeah, not that you're, you have to report to the Buddha or to even to yourself, like, oh yeah, that was a short breath or that was a long breath. That's not the point. The point is the tracking of the physicality of the breath well enough that your mind puts everything else down for a while, for a moment, for moments. And then again with the out-breath, from the beginning of the out-breath all the way to the end so that the mind knows, oh yeah, that, was, that breath was like that. We're really there. So we're, so you know you're tracking the breath when you really get the sense of the birth and the death. Like you were there from the birth. The very first moment the breath started to come in or the out-breath started to go out through midlife, midlife crisis, right? all the way to the slow, fading, complete, absolute ending of that in-breath or that out-breath. And you know you're there when there's that little momentary gap between the end of the in-breath and the beginning of the out-breath. It's sort of like this interesting space between the in and out-breath, between the out and the in-breath. And then you know you got all the way to the end. It's a little miracle because our mind, the habit of the mind more than any other habit is mental proliferation. You know, The default for our minds, I think I can speak for all of us, is to fall back into thinking about this, planning that, worrying about, judging, comparing, analyzing, wondering. And we feel a little naked or 
exposed, vulnerable, if the mind isn't engaged in thinking. It is the default self-soothing technique, except that a lot of the times the mental proliferation isn't self-soothing. It's agitating, right? We scare ourselves. I remember reading recently a teacher saying we have to stop scaring ourselves. But it's interesting how we do that. It's like we're addicted more than being interested in calm and the stability of the mind, we're intensity junkies. So notice when you look at the news or the kind of conversations you have with friends, how we tend to go to topics, even when we're all by ourselves and just proliferating, thinking about this and that, the topics we tend to go to are ones that are agitating and disturbing and stimulating. Not all negative stuff, right? It can be fantasizing about what we do if we won the lottery or fall in love or the person we want to fall in love with us falls in love with us or the one, the person we, you know, whatever it is, want to leave us, leaves us. So whatever (laughs) your stimulating drama might be, you know, getting into or getting out of something, it's just notice and be really honest about more than our addiction to alcohol, cigarettes, pornography, news, gossip, whatever else our mind might be addicted to, our mind is addicted to intensity. And even for people who are involved in really noble causes, or activists working to make the world a better place, involved in justice issues, even that, although the work itself might be good, the mind's relationship to it might be on this level of addiction that we keep going back because the mind is afraid, doesn't know who or what it is when things go to zero, when things get quiet. So this first, there are actually two steps. The Buddha says, breathing in long, one knows I'm breathing in long. Breathing out, um, breathing out long, one knows I'm breathing out long. Breathing in short, One knows I'm breathing in short, breathing out short. One knows I'm breathing out short. So these are the first two steps of 16 instructions for mindfulness of breathing. It seems kind of silly or, you know, simple. And it is simple, but it's not easy because it involves literally the thinking mind is putting down the whole world of thought. And most of our world that we inhabit is the world of thought or concept. And we're entering this other world let's just call it the non-conceptual world of just the physicality of the body and the physicality of the breath. So the world of the mind-knowing sensation, not the idea of the breath, but the actual touching as the breath goes in or the actual movement of the belly as it rises with the in-breath, falls with the out-breath. So don't get frustrated if you find this challenging. You know, you get a half-breath and then the mind gets distracted. You get a breath and a half, and the mind gets distracted. And then you're distracted for two or three minutes. And then you notice the mind's been worrying about this or planning that or thinking about. And then you notice, oh, thinking is being, now it's just thoughts. Then you notice the charge, like if there's any emotion that got stirred up with the thinking, maybe there's an unpleasant feeling or a pleasant feeling. You're worrying, thinking about a breakup, or you're thinking about something you've got to do tomorrow, and there's a little charge to it, and so you notice that. This may take a few seconds just to make peace with the, what we call a distraction. 
oh yeah, it's just this being known. It feels like this. It's just all of this being known. Just this, just this. The mind settles with the distraction, and then we bring the attention back to the training object, feeling the next in or out breath, right? We connect right with the birth. Oh, baby in breath. Sweetie, <laughs> right? Just like you with a little child, like real interest, vividly present. Now, can you sustain it through the middle of the in-breath? Because what's going to interrupt us now is this call of arrogance, arrogant delusion that thinks, I know the in-breath. Well, we don't know this in-breath. We know the idea of in-breath, right? It's like there's a concept, in-breath, and it sort of stands for every in-breath we've ever had. But that's not an in-breath. It's like the menu is not the meal. You can have a really good description of roast beef and mashed potatoes, but it's not the meal. It's a picture, maybe a good vivid description, but it's not the reality of having the food in front of you. And it's the same thing like we maybe we're there vividly present, just allowing the in-breath to begin, but then the mind very quickly, now we're only talking about a fraction of a second, and the mind starts thinking, oh God, I know this in-breath. Why do I need to be present? I mean, it doesn't, we don't actually say though that in words, but that's the attitude, right? And the mind starts looking for some because we're an intensity junkie. What can I think about? What can I worry? What can I plan? What can I remember to fill in this seemingly meaningless space where I'm supposed to be aware of the middle of the in-breath? I mean, how stupid is that? Right? So this is the real work is that can we remember to be interested, to continue to track the in-breath, the in-breath, the in-breath, the in-breath until it's done and just notice that moment. And then we have to renew the confidence that this is a worthy activity. And again, it's not because the breath is so special, but putting down the world of thought is quite transforming. Really. It's a little miracle when we can drop the ongoing narrative, storytelling, thinking process. Just put it down for a little bit, for a breath, two breaths, ten breaths, three or four minutes. Then that's pretty radical. If you can sustain present moment awareness, non-conceptual awareness for a few minutes, you'll feel touch. It will be an altered state. Altered in the sense that it's not your normal way, because the normal way is distraction. One thought leading to the next, leading to the next, leading to the next. And even if one of your thought is, I shouldn't be thinking so much. Yeah, why am I thinking so much? You see how that also will condition more thinking. We can't get out of thinking by thinking we shouldn't be thinking. The only way out of this almost endless mental proliferation is to take the attention and to train the mind to attend to something like physicality. Like the, this is why the, the process of breathing, the physical process of breathing is such a useful training because we have to put down the world. In order to track the in-breath and the out-breath without any gaps, we have to put it all down. And that's just the beginning. Those are just the first two of 16 steps. But it's a big change. Now I'm teaching this because this is how the Buddha did in a linear way. But once you kind of get the map, then you're sort of 
you can play with it a little bit because your practice may not sort of follow it step by step, but you'll know where you are in the map. And so you practice according to where you are, not, well, no, I got to stop at the begin, start at the beginning. But if your mind is already further along, then start where you are. So first we're just tracking the physicality of breathing in, breathing out with enough consistency, no gaps, so that the thinking mind has to cease to some degree at least. It at least has to fade into the background. There may be thinking, but it's not in the forefront of attention. It's just happening because of the force of habit in the periphery of the mind. But what's really there is the mind is sensitive to the sensations of breathing in. And intimate, sensitive, not controlling, no agenda, just aware, right? It's just being aware. And that breath, remember, you don't have to turn your attention to the breath because the sensations of breathing arise in the mind. Where do we know breathing in? We might say, well, I know it at my nostrils or I know it at my belly, but not really. That's a thought that I'm knowing the breath down here by feeling the belly expand and contract. The knowing happens right in the center of the being, right in, right in the middle. So we say in Buddhism, we'll say something, the mind knows, the heart knows, right? That's what we, mind and heart, and the Buddhist system is the same thing. So when we breathe in, we don't have to get tight, like, oh, I got to like, look at my breath. No, that's just a habit. Because just check it right now. You don't even have to do your breath. Just touch something with your hand. Maybe you already are. Right now, immediately, because of the force of habit, we think, oh, I'm knowing this experience of touching over here. But where is the sensations? Like, let's say it's a smooth touch or a hard touch. It's being known in the mind, isn't it? Where else could it be known? It's being known right in the middle of things, that, that touch. Same with the experience of breathing in. Everything is known in the mind. So we think, you know, I'm hearing the sound out there. No, we're hearing the sound here, right here in the center of things. And then part of what we're with the hearing is the thought that that sound is coming from over there. But that thought is happening here. So it's, it's like we have to learn not to be confused by our own experience. Right? Everything's happening here. And the reason why I'm making that point is it helps us be really relaxed. Because if we don't remember that it's all happening right here in the space of the mind, in the space of the heart, in the space of the present moment, if we don't remember that, then we're going to create unnecessary efforting. And the body and mind is going to get a little tight because it thinks, I got to hear that sound over there. I got to notice the breathing in here. I'm remembering what happened earlier today over there. But where's the past? Past doesn't exist anywhere but now as a thought in my mind, which is right here. Same thing, like I can be so thinking that, you know, I'm planning my future out and like it's way out there. But it's just a thought right here. It's always right here. And so the, what we can do then is we can learn just to, you know that thing you did when you were a teenager and you'd fall back and there'd be some people behind you to catch you, and you're just like, it's like a trust exercise. Hopefully they ca- caught you. <laughs> Otherwise you could have some issues where you need a therapist. <laughs> you can't trust anybody. It's the same thing. It's like the awareness is right here. 
So knowing the in-breath is right here, I can relax, like just relax or trust or rest in awareness. And right there in the space of the mind and the awareness of the mind, the knowing of the breath is right there. We don't have to go somewhere. We don't have to make this sort of mental effort to get to the breath because it's here. Everything's happening in the sensitive heart, mind. So first step, first two steps really, tracking tracking with enough persistence that the mind has to put everything down. And then when you can do that, then we can do this third training, which is the Buddha, and he actually uses the word training because what we're doing now is we're finding an intention in the mind to experience the whole body as we're breathing in. So we're still tuning in to the sensations of breathing in and breathing out, but we're noticing as I'm feeling the sensations of breathing in, the whole body's right there. Because like I just said, everything shows up in the mind, and the mind is right here. So even though the sensations of breathing in might be right in the forefront, like feeling the belly expand, Where are the sensations of the rest of the body? Well, they're being known right there in the periphery of that thing that's in the forefront. So isn't that true? It's like you might have been trained, like in terms of musicology, you might be trained to really tune in to the stringed instruments if you're listening to an orchestra or to the saxophone, you know, if you're listening to a jazz combo. So you just, like you really have an ear for that particular instrument. But isn't it possible that as we're listening, as we're really tracking that particular instrument and how it's you know, being played and all the different riffs and you know, intensities and the way the performer is performing, isn't it possible that we can relax the attention so that we're hearing all the instruments right there, but also but not losing the attentiveness to the particular instrument that we've trained to hear. And you can do it here too. Like You can partic- pick a, a particular visual image. If you look at a person, it might get self-conscious, but maybe the back of a person, most of you, right? So you look at a back of a head. I'm looking at sort of a thing on the wall over there. And then like I can focus on it. I can keep tracking that experience of visually seeing that, right? And that's being seen in the mind. It seems like it's over there, but actually the scene is happening right here. And when I relax my attention to the visual experience, I can notice all the other visual you know, experiences, all the other things the eyes are seeing in the periphery, right? I can be aware of the whole visual field without losing the attentiveness to the particular object. Everybody get that? So that's the third step in mindfulness of breathing. You're still there. You're still dependent. Like we're using the, wherever you choose, however it's easy for you to feel the breath, some of you in the belly, some of you at the nostrils, those are the two most regular places people use. But some people find it easiest to feel the breath in the chest area. That's a smaller percentage. But you just see where it's easy for you to feel the physicality, the actual sensations of breathing in and out, And then let that be your training anchor, your meditation object. And over time, maybe months and months, but it will become a very dear friend because the mind 
it will be like a doorway back to the present moment for you with time. So even if it's a really crazy time out in the world and you're in arguments or feeling a lot of fear or emotional distress, you'll be able to connect with your friend and put it down for a moment so that when you pick it up, the distress, you pick it up again, you'll pick it up in a fresh way, a little lighter, a little less, a little less oppressed by the difficulty in your life because you were able to put it down for a few moments and just be with one in-breath or a couple out, uh, in and out breaths. And so for the third step, we're learning to relax the focus on the training object, the meditation object, and find this more relaxed, inclusive, all-embracing awareness or presence. But we're not losing the connection with the meditation object, the training object, like the in and out breath. And you'll see, and the Buddha taught different ways to practice. So mindfulness of breathing is just one, but it's a real classic technique. Everybody should learn it, even if it's not your primary way of practicing over the years. It's really good for everybody to get a sense of how it works. So tracking in and out, enough to put every the mental proliferation down to some degree, so at least it's receded into the background. And then take up the third training, where you're training your attention as you're breathing, breathing in to feel, to know the whole body. And as you're breathing out, to be sensitive to the sensations of the whole body. So whole body awareness. Now this, the reason why this is so useful is that this is a very effective technique for daily life practice. So not when you're formally meditating, but you're out in your life, taking care of the kids, doing your job, shopping for groceries, because the experience of whole body awareness is a relatively easy way to stay in the present moment as you're living your life. And this is the third step in this mindfulness of breathing. So then you get pretty good at that. So you have some continuity. As you're breathing in, you're sensitive to the whole body. As you're aware of breathing out, you're sensitive to the whole body. As you're breathing in, you're sensitive. And then the mind gets distracted, but you come back. So there's some continuity, some stability of the returning and uh, awareness of the whole body as you're breathing in and out. Then the fourth instruction, and these, these 16 instructions come in groups of four. So this first four is really about being intimate with embodiment. But the fourth step, in order to complete and kind of stabilize awareness of the body, embodiment, is beginning to notice the calm. Now the calm is a natural arising with the whole body awareness. Because in a way what we're doing with that whole body awareness is we're healing the mind's relationship with the body. And it is our primary relationship. You may think your primary relationship was with your mother or your caregiver as a child, but it isn't. It's with our body. The mind's relationship with the body is the primary relationship. And if it's screwed up, it's not easy to have relationships with anything else in the world. You try it. (laughs) So it's very useful to have a harmonious, calm, and kind relationship with the whole body. And the way that works is, so now we're, remember, we wouldn't move to the fourth step until we have some stability with the third, which means we're breathing in sensitive to the whole body. 
and we're breathing out, sensitive to the whole body. So the fourth step with the, when we have some continuity there is, as you're breathing in, sensitive to the whole body, you start training the attention to notice calm. doesn't matter where in the body you can discern some calm. Maybe it's just your hand resting on your thigh is calm, is relaxed, is at ease. Right? It could be very simple. Or your shoulders, or your mouth, or your legs. But it doesn't matter. You're just tuning in as you're sensitive to the whole body, breathing in and out, to some place where there's some calm, and you notice. What are you noticing? There's calm here. As I'm breathing in, I'm appreciating the calm. I'm sensitive sensitive to it. I'm intimate with it. As I'm breathing out, I'm just intimate, aware of the calm as it's actually here now in the body in this particular place. When you start to notice calm, the tendency is it for it to expand, to broaden and deepen. So you just keep doing that, sensitive to calm as you're breathing in, sensitive to the calm in the body as you breathe out, until it begins to feel like the calm has really spread and deepened, and the whole body has the tone of calm as you breathe in and out. And you feel the mind feels clear, clearly established, clearly aware, clearly connected with the calm in the body as you breathe in and as you breathe out. And you see how that completes this first set of four. And the, the sense of that is the mind and body are in harmony. So this is, this is a big step just to get, just to sort of have moments where you've sort of, the mind has achieved, I guess you could say, mastered, not that it will be forever, right? It will change. You'll, then you start worrying or you get greedy. Oh, I'm so glad I'm here. I'm never going to leave this spot. And even by just getting lost in that thought, it will already begin to dissipate. Whatever calm you've gotten starts to fade because now the mind is proliferating. You're not in the present moment. You're lost in thought about how wonderful it is to be calm and how now you're going to be calm. Oh, it would be so nice to be calm tomorrow when I'm at my business meeting or having to deal with this person. And in a sense, you'll be a million miles away. So the causes that allowed the calm to develop aren't there anymore. So the calm is going to dissipate. It's going to fall apart. Birth and death again, right? So don't worry, because now we've sort of learned how to get back there. So we're forgiving, we're patient, we're willing to begin again. Oh, I can just go back to tracking, right? Breathing in, knowing the sensations of breathing in from the beginning to the end. While breathing out, connecting, sustaining awareness with that simple physical experience of breathing out from the beginning to the end. Putting down the world. I don't need to think about that now. I don't need to worry about that now. I don't need to plan that now. I don't need to remember that now. I don't need to fantasize about that now. I can just be aware of the breath coming in from the beginning to the end. Breath going out from the beginning to the end. I can be sensitive to the whole body as I'm breathing in. I can be sensitive to the whole body as I'm breathing out. I can begin to notice calm as I breathe in. I can be sensitive, experience calm as I breathe out. I can notice how it spreads, how it broadens, how it deepens. Right? And then that takes us to the next set. Now the next set are really about noticing the feeling. And generally we train mostly with the pleasant feeling tone. 
So if you get enough calm, the mind's going to start being happy. And the initial feeling or experience of happy will, will be what we call joy. So we're breathing in, simply noticing the joy in the mind. And we're breathing out, noticing the joy in the mind. Now, it's interesting, isn't it? Like, well, what's joy? I mean, here we are. I'm 58 or you're whatever age you are. But isn't it amazing that having had a mind, as long as we've had a mind, that we might still be unclear what actually is joy? And how is joy different than happiness? It's great when you study, the more you study Buddhism, it's kind of like, you know, people who are in the room are artists or Megan's a a new doctor. Uh, People have their own expertise. Some of you are knitters, you know, some of you have raised children. And you get this amazing vocabulary, this fluency of your mind where in your particular field, you know a lot, right? And so as a Buddhist practitioner, we get really skilled, we get really fluent at noticing the different qualities of the mind. Like all the different qualities of dukkha or unsatisfactoriness or suffering. Oh yeah, that's that torment I call despair. That torment I call boredom. This is greed. This is fear. This is, you know, it's like normal people, we kind of go, oh, I'm not feeling good. But a practitioner knows exactly what the feeling is because they're paying attention to the pleasant and unpleasant, the wholesome and the unwholesome states of mind that come and go. So we want to be able to recognize what joy is, that expansive, it has kind of a expansive, it has a light quality to it, sometimes a flowing or a not fixed quality, joy does, energetic sometimes. And the thing about joy, even though we talk about it as a mind state, there's almost always a physical reverberation to that quality of mind, which also is sort of fluid and light, like a flowing quality. So some of the ways you might start to be aware, so there you are, remember, we're already feeling a lot of calm at this stage and this nice harmony where the body and mind have a harmonious relationship. And we're still in the present moment, aware of the breathing in, breathing out, aware of the joy, breathing in, and the joy throughout the mind is breathing out. I mean, aware of the calm, rather, as we're breathing in and breathing out. And then we're just, now we're training the mind to notice joy. And you could even, like, if you want to prompt it, you could just let the question arise in the mind, breathing in, is there any joy present here? in the space of the mind, in the space of the heart right now, while breathing out. Is there any joy present here? And you just sort of drop the question. You don't have to search because if there's any joy, where is it going to be? This is not a trick question. It's going to be here because is there any other place but here? Only as a thought. Everything is always here. Where else could it be? So if there's any joy in the mind, it would be here here in the space of awareness. Right? So we're just sensitive, we're interested. Is there any experiencing of joy present? However faint, it might be somewhat feeble or just like the seed of joy, not the full bloom. It don't expect ecstasy, ecstasy. It's just the beginning reverberations of it. But this is how we grow it. 
we notice it. Now our habit is to notice the non-joy, the torments, the unhappiness. But now we're training the mind to notice the pleasantness of joy and to keep tuning into it. Because then you'll notice it spreading, deepening, broadening, filling the space of the mind. In the same way we felt calm spreading through the body, the settledness of the body, we can begin to notice the broadening and spreading and the deepening of joy until the whole mind feels light, happy, bright, which leads us then to a more maturing of that kind of happiness into what the word is sukha, is the second kind, which usually gets translated as a kind of ease or a releasing of the heart. So more where joy is more kind of expansive and bright, uh, the second sukha is more like, ah, sort of a melting of tension in the heart you didn't even know was there. You know how you feel like you're sitting in the kitchen, you feel fine, and then the refrigerator that's been buzzing for 10 minutes goes off, and your mind goes, ah, that's nice. (laughs) I didn't even, or you, you know, wearing pants that are too tight, too tight, too tight, and then at the end of the day you take them, ah, that feels good. And it's like it was, so, it was tight for so long you didn't even realize that it was tight. And that's like this second kind. And we'll go there in the weeks ahead as we go through the instructions. So that's instruction number six. Experience, learn, training the mind to experience the ease, the sukha. Just like piti is the fifth instruction. That's joy, the word for joy or rapture. Then ease. Now, it's easy when I give these instructions for people to start saying, oh, God, I never have any of that stuff. All I notice is distraction, right? But not always, actually. You may think that's true. So when you sit down, you know, and you kind of establish your posture and you settle in, mostly we're going to start with the first two instructions of just tracking the breath coming in, tracking the breath going out. And for those of you who, who have been practicing for a while and don't use mindfulness of breathing, don't worry because... Even if you're doing an open attention practice, it's the same thing. You have to be aware of the different objects that you're knowing in a non-conceptual way. You have to break the cycle of thinking one way or another, whether you're using one object and directing your attention back to the breath, or you're using whatever's predominant, hearing, seeing, feeling sensation, knowing thought is thought. But one way or another, we have to break the addictive habit of being lost in thought. And so one way to do it is with what what we call a directed meditation, where we're directing the attention to a particular meditation object. Mindfulness of breathing is just one example of that. There are many. Or you could use a non-directed practice. Usually here at the center, we call that like an open attention practice. Or some people, I don't like it as much, use the term choiceless awareness. But the idea there is, moment by moment, the mind, awareness, is connecting with some object of experience and it's being intimate with it until it's connecting with the next object of experience, predominant experience. But it might be sensation in one moment and hearing in the next moment and seeing something in the next moment and aware of thought is just a thought in the next moment and then this in the next moment. But one moment after another, it's aware of it not in terms of the thought of it, but as a phenomena that's just being known. 
Thought is being known. Sound is being known. Seeing is being known. Sensation is being known. That's the open attention practice. So the reason why it's really useful to learn these this map of these 16 steps that we'll be doing over the next several weeks is regardless of your meditation practice, this map will present itself as your practice develops. Now, we're going to learn it, like I said a, a while back, in a linear way. But you need to learn the map so you can be really fluid. In the same way that a musician, they learn the scales, they learn this and the that's, but they don't get stuck with the sort of training modes. It just allows them to really break loose and be skillful and be an artist. So now we're learning how to be an artist with a mind that knows, with awareness. But we learn like the natural progression, how the mind goes from agitated states and being lost in thought and addicted to intensity to a mind learns how to really settle down and to have continuity of present moment awareness and this real maturing of the stability of mind from a sort of stable mind to a very stable mind, a mind that is so stable that it can use the mind itself, the awareness itself can watch awareness. It's amazing. And you can notice the colorings of awareness, like the greed, even very subtle kinds of greed and subtle kinds of joy and subtle kinds of peace and subtle kinds of hate and agitation. So that it really, that mind can understand how it is that stress and hate and fear arises. And that's a mind that can understand how peace arises and letting go arises, that really stable mind. And so that's where we go with the practice as we develop it. But I'll leave it here. It'd be nice to hear from some of you who have been practicing for a while and people who are new. For people who are new, any questions you have about what I've said tonight? For people who are more experienced, it'd be nice just to hear what you've been learning, especially in light of some of the things that I've said it's always nice to hear the, the practice from different perspectives. It makes it easier for people to understand. Yeah, Lewis, you want to start us off? Thank you. Um, <clears throat> I went to um, what I would call beginner's questions. And I certainly came up with a lot of answers for myself. But uh, what came up initially was, why should we do this? What would, what did the Buddha say, and what was his motivation? Um, am I, if I practice this and I become more peaceful, what happens to my sense of self? Am I this isolated person at peace, or is there more to it than that? Yeah, yeah, that goes right to the heart of it. And the way the Buddha talked about the path, he said human beings really only have one problem, which is, you know, he called it ignorance, but more specifically what that means is <coughs> the way the mind operates, the way the heart operates in the world is could be characterized by misperceiving, right? Because as I'm moving through my life, the way I perceive, the way I organize my reality the story I tell myself is based on my cultural conditioning. And we all know how limited our cultural conditioning 
And it's not just cultural conditioning, it's also our genetic conditioning, you know, to be afraid, to be greedy. And so we're literally trapped by that those perceptual habits. And part of those perceptual habits is we ignore most things and tune into a few aspects of what's happening in the present moment. And then we react to the few things we are noticing based on how our mind is conditioned. And so the Buddha called all of those habits ignorance or not seeing clearly the way it is. So he said that's the only problem. And the the result of that problem of misperceiving is we get a world like this that's really governed by hate and fear and greed and different ineffective habits of distraction and denial, right? And all the implications of that kind of world, like consumerism, our dependence on getting neat things and having more than other people. They've done experiments where they found that, uh, I think there was a study at Harvard, and they they basically said you could, uh, I don't know exactly how they organized it, but you could have earned $200,000 a year, but everybody else is also earning $200,000 a year. Or you could earn $60,000 a year, but everybody else would be earning 30000 And what do you think people would say? They wanted the 60. They wanted twice as much as everybody else, as opposed to having 200000 when everybody else had 200000 And they did it, the study in a sophisticated way. This is just kind of giving you the conclusions. Because... Part of our perceptual, like, I feel good because I'm better than you. I'm higher than you. I mean, I know we can get around that, but a lot of our habit energy is about hierarchy, right? And that creates so much suffering because that means somebody's got to be at the bottom in in order for me to feel good. Well, that's so good if you're at the bottom, you know. And then it's like once we're at the top, we don't want it to change, and so then we get a world like this with the prejudices and the, you know, the sort of institutionalized injustices that we have in our world around race, around uh, gender, around so many uh, ways. And so the Buddha says this world arises not because of external forces, but because of the way each of our minds perceive things. So we have to change that. So. That's why the work we're doing is really undermining habits of superficiality, habits of misperceiving, right? Because we're perceiving, our perceiving mechanism is being governed by our, the stories we're telling ourselves, basically. So we can diffuse them by training the mind to be in the present moment. We're basically unfixing the mind. The mind is normally fixated on our views. Views are thinking patterns, like I'm better or I'm worse or whatever particular view our mind tends to go back to over and over again. That's just a repeating story in the mind, way of perceiving in the mind. So when we train our mind to be in the present moment, we've got to temporarily drop a lot of that kind of conditioning. It's still there as a latent force in the mind, but now it's not active in the mind, right? Because now we're in the present moment aware of body as body, sound as sound, thought is just thought. So even if there is thought, the mind's not now, in this moment, not confused. It's just a thought. It's just a mental activity being known. So we're training and we're, we're basically collecting data, like what is our reality 
when we're not, our mind is not governed by this cultural conditioning, right? And so we're we're sort of retraining our mind. I heard a lecture. This was a long time ago. It was 1982. But I was visiting a friend who was a grad student at the University of Chicago. She's studying political theory, and uh, this professor was giving this talk about uh, using a biblical story when Moses took the Jews, the people, into the desert for 40 years. That's sort of an interesting. Like, so they were enslaved. The Jews were enslaved in Egypt. And he was taking them to the, a new place to start a new life. But they wandered for 40 years. Now that's like, with God on your side, you're wondering, like, why did they have to wander for 40 years? And so this, guy's analy- this professor is analyzing this from a political theory point of view. And he said, well, those people were enslaved for generations. So their perceptual mechanism was to see things from the point of view of being an enslaved people, right? So he needed to, he needed to sort of let, he didn't want to establish the new place with the elders who only knew slavery. He wanted to give some time for the new kids, the young ones, to grow up not in slavery, but in freedom, to be the leaders of this new place. That was his theory. I don't know. I mean, who knows if it's true, but it's, it makes a lot of sense. Like we got to get ourselves out of our habits, out of our cultural conditioning enough so that we know how to be in the world without being confused. We can't get rid of our cultural conditioning, but we can learn to see it as just something, just habit energy, just forces in the mind to be afraid, to judge, to compare, to just see, oh, that's just that tendency of the mind. I don't, I, if I can see it, I don't have to be governed by it. But if I'm unconscious of it, if I haven't trained my mind to see it, I'm still governed by it, the fear, by the delusion, you know, the fixed views that we have in the mind. So the being in the present moment, stabilizing the awareness in the present moment, is how we get some freedom from those habits. We, we're basically learning how to be free from the conditioned habits of the mind. And the thing is, we can become, with a lot of healing, maybe even some therapeutic work, we can become aware of how unskillful our conditioning is. But to really get free of it, we have to learn how to step out of it and to stay out of it long enough so that we have this ability to reflect on it. Oh, that's just the effect of trauma arising here. And I can feel it, I can be intimate with it, but I don't have to fall under the the vortex of it. I don't have to get drawn into it anymore. A lot of people in this room have probably had trauma. right? In the old days, when we were just getting to know it, it would arise and we'd fall back into its sort of influence. But maybe now we can feel it, we can see it, but not so much so, or we've thrown around by it. Yeah, good question, Louis. Any other thoughts before we go on? (laughs) The only other thought that came to mind when you referred to the Jews being in the desert was that be a perfect environment in order to teach cooperation and mutual responsibility and accountability too. Yeah, and self-reliance and independence 
and uh, sort of taking responsibility for our own destiny. Yeah. Which I'm sure is all sort of what happened there. But you know how it is that, uh, I mean, I feel this now as I'm sort of getting close to 60, and uh, I'm just, it's just so much more poignant seeing the younger generations and uh, really appreciating the limits. Like, like I, my mind, even though I've really been training to study my mind and to not get caught, I realize the limits of my imagination, right? Just based on having lived in, with the frames that I got as a kid. And so part of being an elder is like to really take responsibility for the wisdom that we have, having lived this long, having practiced as well as we've practiced. But part of what that wisdom tells us is our limits and how to trust the younger people who have less conditioning, basically, and more possibilities. Well, I like totally identify with that story, and it seems to me that the challenge is still the consciousness of us and them, which is a major challenge. Yeah, that's one of the major parts of our conditioning is to think as, you know, tribally, like in terms of who belongs and who doesn't belong, which has its limitations. It arose in a particular time and place where maybe it made sense, but it's deeply ingrained. But we have to step out of it one way or another, or there will be not only limits to our own happiness, but even limits to just survival as a species. Yeah. And it's 8.30. <laughs> so we've opened it all up. So now we have the rest of our lives to sort of find our way. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.